0: There is a universal challenge that the profession faces or how we do design. I mean, there are cost constraints and oftentimes our clients are trying to go for how can we make it more cheaper instead of making it more efficient. And I've had this discussion with a lot of our clients when we talk about sustainability and their heart is in the right place. And when the dollars and cents kick in, there is a cost to sustainability. And I often say it's our goal to make sustainability affordable for them, where the way we design things. And that's something I have seen evolve, even at, let's say, from DimGym to AECOM, a fairly different scale, and innovative solutions to any problem out there. And one thing that I'm super mindful of, and I work actively, is to make sure that architecture and design doesn't become a commodity because, I mean, we are creating innovative solutions and we're not manufacturing widgets. And the more we stay true to our calling of being innovative, being creative, I mean, the more successful we are.
1: Welcome to A Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Himanshu Parwani, also known as HP. HP is the CEO of Olsen Kundig and one of the firm's owners. He's responsible for directing operations and finance at Olsen Kundig, including the firm's business and organizational development, HR, and finance departments, information technology, and the administrative team. HP supplements the firm's design first strategy with effective operational resources. Very exciting conversation today. He's worked in international operations, capital markets, and strategic development for over 30 years. He began his career in finance at a specialized financial advisory firm before moving to the Middle East, where he worked on international corporate tax advisory services. After that, he became the chief financial officer of international operations for ACOM, So he's been able to see a lot of different scales, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Since then, HP has gone on to hold CEO, COO, and CFO roles for various international firms in the AEC industry, delivering projects on almost all continents. HP is an avid mountaineer and has climbed some of the world's tallest mountains, including Everest, which is amazing. (laughs) HP often climbs to raise money for causes close to his heart, including the American Cancer Society and Autism Speaks. Mountaineering reflects HP's larger approach to business and operations. He believes in fostering a team mentality where trust emerges as colleagues work together towards a common purpose. And with that, I'm also really pleased to be joined again by Chris Morgan from the Monograph team. HP, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hey, George. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's going to be an exciting conversation. And congratulations on getting the first conference put together, Section Cut. seems really interesting. So uh, looking forward to the topics
1: there as well. So thank great you so to be much. here. Yeah, and uh, Chris can kind of kick it off with us with the first question.
2: Yeah, so thanks a lot, HP. And thanks, George, once again. So. We had the absolute pleasure of having some of your colleagues on earlier this year at Olsen-Kundig, Alan Maskin and Jerry Garcia. And the conversation started with kind of reminiscing and looking forward to returning back to the office. So Alan and uh, Jerry described the architecture of the office space at Olsen-Kundig. And I'm wondering if you can do something similar for us, but uh, walk us through the business of Olsen-Kundig.
0: Sure. Great question. The business of Olsen-Kundig in the end is design. I mean, everything that exists is there to support the design. I mean, our philosophy is to be design first and that drives our entire thought process. I mean, that's what our DNA is. And any and every decision that's made in the firm is based on uh, the design first thinking. I mean, one of the things from my past that I've kind of brought here as well is that other functions, whether it's finance or HR or any of those things, are there to support uh, design. So I would say our architecture is basically doing great design.
1: Awesome. Thank you for that. The first question I'll ask is the one that we talked a little bit about and I think is very timely for today. And essentially, why should people enter the profession now Why should someone join Austin Kundig at any level or function?
0: That's a great question. And that's something that I have pondered a lot, have discussed with my fellow colleagues in the profession. And again, just a quick background. I mean, I came into the architecture industry nearly 30 years ago. I mean, even on the finance side, from tax advisory, moving on to the dark side, and then I decided to stay there. uh, Design, it's an interesting question, I would say oftentimes folks wonder as to why should they join the industry? I mean, why should they be part of design? And one of the things that we as designers or uh, as architects need to think about is there is built environment that has existed for what, nearly 2,000, 3,000 years. Now, all different innovation has happened in that time. And as we project the growth of mankind, I mean, we are seven plus billion people, and there is only so much that planet can support. How can we as architects support that population in the future? I mean, there is limited space. How do we get creative? How do we get innovative and uh, come up with ideas which are sustainable? I mean, we discuss a lot about the materials that go into construction these days. And how do we create a sustainable future for all of us? And I see architects as a solution to that problem. Factoring in climate change, factoring in the limited resources that are there, how do we create a built environment across all different sectors? I mean, oftentimes architecture is seen from the viewpoint of near proximity, my residential space, my office, my hotel or wherever I go to. But design kind of impacts any and every industry that you would take, be it transportation, information technology, data centers or whatnot. So, I mean, that's one profession that impacts all other professions out there. You could be in healthcare, medical, this thing. In the end, you have to operate from a built environment. So oftentimes, we kind of short sell ourselves when we don't talk about design as being the glue that, that impacts all of the professions out there. So, I mean, the more we kind of bring that to the younger generation for them to understand what does design mean, I think the more successful we would be. And also to appeal to the passion of folks. I mean, architecture and design is all about the passion that folks have. And coming out of school or colleges, et cetera, folks have a lot of passion, but then they see other avenues, I mean, which may get them probably more money or kind of a title or something. From that perspective, architecture is, it's a unique profession that impacts everything.
2: I was going to ask about your story, like coming into architecture. And then what what's kept you in? Have you found a similar passion? Like, did you see a passion that you're describing here? Or what was it, like in more detail, what happened that made you transition into architecture?
0: Sure. I was on financial advisory side. And in those days, AECOM wasn't really AECOM. I mean, it had different entities. And my, I clearly remember the first company that I joined was called Dimjim, DMJM. I mean, for the folks who've been around for a while, would remember. And I am pay you came out of DMJM, believe it or not. And coming into the design world, I was just blown away by our creative problem solving and how every day we kind of get to physically see our dreams come true. I mean, we create, we envision spaces, et cetera, and then get them built. So, I mean, that's a unique profession uh, or unique uh, space to be in, whether it's architecture, interior design, landscape, I mean, you envision something, you have a possibility of making that in a physical space. And every day that I come in, I see way smarter people than I am and creating new things, innovative problem solving. And it just brings me day in, day out.
1: Over that trajectory, working at very different types of firms and very different sizes and in different roles too, as we highlighted mm -hmm. earlier. Yeah. What have you tracked as like the most pressing changes or the trends that are currently impacting design or like design services, maybe to be more specific?
0: Uh, I would say, I think there is a universal challenge that the profession faces or how we do design. I mean, there are cost constraints and oftentimes our clients are trying to go for How can we make it more cheaper instead of making it more efficient? And I've had this discussion with a lot of our clients when we talk about sustainability and their heart is in the right place. And when the dollars and cents kick in, there is a cost to sustainability. And I often say it's our goal to make sustainability affordable for them, where the way we design things. And that's something I have seen evolve, even at, let's say, from DimGym to AECOM, fairly different scale and innovative solutions to any problem out there. And one thing that I'm super mindful of and I work actively is to make sure that architecture and design doesn't become a commodity. Because, I mean, we are creating innovative solutions and we're not manufacturing widgets. And the more we stay true to our calling of being innovative, being creative, I mean, the more successful we are. I mean, and the clients do appreciate that as well.
1: Do you find that the clients that Olson Kundig is able to attract, like, do they already somewhat self-select themselves? I mean, the work that the firm does is very distinguished, notable. It has its own aura in some sense. Like from a brand perspective, do you feel like a lot of clients come to you already with knowing a little bit of what they're getting in a sense?
0: I would say yes and no. There is an element of what you describe we I mean, where of self-selection, but there is an aspirational aspect as well. And oftentimes some of our clients come to us and say, could you do a 400 square foot cabin? I mean, for us. And we would say, absolutely. I mean, and in fact, we find those projects to be more interesting because that challenges our thinking. I mean, yes, we do larger spaces, but those are the projects that get our juices flowing.
2: HP, I'm curious, like, As a business leader, but working with designers, I think a lot of architects feel that there's a fundamental conflict with the interests of business, with the interests of design or architecture. And I'm curious, have you discovered that there's like a fundamental misunderstanding that some architects have about business?
0: I would say yes. I mean, I think universally that has existed for ever since the profession has been where the conflicts around the business having to make money and the designer wanting to design, I often intersect. So there is, I would say, a misconception about it. And again, I would say the business side of things also needs to understand the needs of the creatives and the needs of design that needs to happen. Sharing an example with you, I was having this conversation uh, with some members of my team the other day around this topic. And I was giving an example of design. I'm like, some of the business side or process is like the structural beams that you would have in a house or in any of our design projects. And you create around those. Those are there to support design. They are not the be-all or end-all. And that's where, I mean, often I would say it's an art. I mean, business is an art, architecture is an art, and how we make the two meld together. Instead of the instead of the two intersecting each other, how do they meld together? That's the key for the firms that have been successful.
1: Do you find that it's the like we're very curious about where maybe like the intention and strategy kind of come together Mm -hmm. in designing firms and and their operations. And so Olsen kind of seems to be a very, as you mentioned, like a design-led firm, right? And so everything in this organization makes sense to support it from a specific, from operationally a certain way. Does the business model then of the practice Or is it highly determined by that structure? In other words, in other businesses that you worked in, do you see certain things specific to olsen Kundig because of being design-led that might not be apparent in other types of firms? Or is there something unique in just how the operations is structured relative to it being a design-led business?
0: So a few years back, we embraced the thinking of going from professional run firm to a professional-led firm. And when I say that, I mean design professional-led firm. And that was a huge thing for us because I would say, I don't think anybody goes to architecture school to learn how to run business. When they come out, they're probably the least armed to know how to run business. I mean, if you want to learn how to run business, you would go to a business school. So for Olsen Kundig, I mean, what we have done and what's been successful for us is that We let the design folks run design. We let the business folks run business. And we come together as partners, which have the same beliefs. I mean, a common purpose. And you talked about mountaineering and one of the statements in there, you said, how do I build trust by aligning purpose? And I see the exact same thing in business and architecture. How do we align the purpose? That's the most critical thing. I mean, in the end, even on design side, we want to make the best design project for our clients to fit in their budgets and be paid fairly for that. I mean, so if those are the goals, I mean, I think those are the goals that align with the business side of things. They align with the design side of things. And by aligning those values and purposes, we are able to be successful as a firm. I mean, oftentimes where some firms, I mean, I've seen quite a few firms over my last 30 years where they've gone from design-led to finance-led, where Money is driving most of the decision-making process. And I've seen challenges there because, I mean, if your goal is to make money, then you are sacrificing design. And that's not the reason you are into design. I mean, if you're going to be design-led, then the clients are there who will be paying you your fair fees. And if you're efficient enough, everybody would be happy. The staff is happy. They get opportunities to work on exciting projects. And we take care of them as well.
2: How do you reconcile from a business perspective, like from a business mind, say you have almost no sense for architecture, you're talking with a business colleague, how do you like discuss this idea of reducing potential profitability in the short term for some other long-term value creation? So what you're talking about, like, is that there could be in firms, there's an opportunity like a horizon that finance sees. For changing aspects of the fundamental decision making about a firm that in your case you've kind of learned like that horizon is actually not an opportune space in fact it's more important to see some other horizon so I'm just curious like how you might talk about that from like a business perspective
0: most often what I've done is to break down some of those opportunities horizons etc in the form of what are the needs of our clients? I mean, where are our clients going? Or where is the uh, industry or a market going? And kind of use that as a basis for what I call informed decision making, not a dollars and cents, not a financial decision making, but more so, what are the needs we're trying to address? Or first, uh, understanding or identifying what are the problems that exist today in whichever markets, and how we could be part of that solution. And those solutions will create opportunities. And I would just share with you, Olsen Kundig's been doing a tremendous amount of work for our clients who are art collectors and things like that. And they often reach out to us and what could you help us identify art pieces or whatnot. And that kind of became a genesis for us to have kind of an art practice where we are helping clients curate art and things like that. So when we focus on the needs of the client, I mean, I think the opportunities just became so self-evident where we were like, is there a reason why aren't we doing this? Same thing uh, with our push for sustainability, where once we understand the problem, I mean, why aren't our all projects going through a sustainability index within the firm? And that's been one of our pushes where we are looking at how do we have all our projects go through a sustainability lens? Like we do QC on all our projects, we should apply the same lens to all our projects.
1: I love to hear that, that kind of, uh, that story of being able to be so responsive to your clients that new lines of revenue potentially emerge because of that, like uh, new types of services that you're not necessarily boxed into, you know, the phases that you, that, you know, standard architecture or a standard AIA contracts might suggest, right? That you really are just trying to understand how do you provide design value And that, in some sense, what I'm always fascinated about, like, design-led firms like this is that when people talk about value, right, a lot of the conversation in the industry is like, oh, you know, our fees are so blah, 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 and like, but it's so hard to explain our value or whatnot, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like by approaching it this way, by aligning yourself directly with what the client needs, very, you know, to the point where you can detect the change, right, in what that need is, you're able to just open up the organization, the firm, to be flexible too, to kind of grow and adapt as the client also grows and adapt. And that kind of mentality probably opens up new career trajectories for even internal employees, right? I mean, it's like an, it's an, another way in which firms can stay dynamic while also delivering additional value that could even be at a higher margin, as an example, than traditional services.
2: Absolutely.
0: I think that's something that's very dear to us. We've always thought about that. And I would say there are certain other firms in our profession who think like that, who embrace that. And case in point is the whole idea around digital fabrication and whatnot, where other firms are kind of using that innovative approaches to bringing efficiency and creating more margins, not just for us, but for the clients as well. I mean, we are making the whole construction process more seamless and more quicker for them so that the time to market compresses and the projects are already quicker enough.
2: HP, uh, when we were having our conversation with Alan and Jerry, you were on your latest mountaineering trek. I'm curious uh, if there are any lessons that you discovered in that last climb.
0: Yes, many. And that's why I enjoy climbing. I've always uh, shared with my uh, colleagues here that summit is, is never the goal. I mean, it happens, which is great. I mean, on my last expedition, I was there for two months and uh, the summit is only 30 minutes. So if you put it into perspective, if you're not there for your passion to enjoy the journey, then the summit means nothing. I mean, you will suffer through things and then uh, kind of get used to it. And again, talking with one of my friends, how do you get used to it? You have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I kind of use that even in my philosophy, whether it's running the firm or whatnot. If you look at the last two years or year and a half, 18 months, I mean, with the pandemic, and everything, it was an uncomfortable space. And if you have figured out a way to be comfortable in that space, in a way, you be nimble, you move quickly, you pivot. And that's a lesson that I've learned in my whole climbing history, history where there are, there are no, I mean, there are certain set rules, but I mean, things change, mountain changes, climate changes, and you have to just pivot, be adapt, be nimble. And be flexible. I mean, that's the most important thing. Oftentimes when I talk about climbing, I just get carried away. One of the things that often happens to a lot of the climbers is called the summit fever, where you get so engrossed and you think that summit is the be all end all, where you take more risks than are acceptable, and then there are unfortunate consequences. So I would say I always believe in enjoying the journey. I mean, that's the most important thing. Same thing. I mean, if you're not enjoying our projects, our design process, the end project, I mean, yes, we want it to be built for the client, but we have to enjoy. Our client has to enjoy. If they are not happy with the process, we are not happy. I mean, then it reflects in the end product. product. So I would say enjoy, be nimble, and one step in front of
1: the other. In the journey of the firm, let's say, like, and the introduction of the CEO i'm very curious like what was the forcing function behind that what was the internal conversation that led to that for our listeners there are not that many CEOs i'd say like in especially in design led firms or sorry design first firms and so just very curious like how did that conversation start and what were the immediate changes that happened after that
0: so uh i would say the partners here were uh, always forward-thinking, uh, quite a bit, and again realized that they, as architects and designers, wanted to focus on the design aspect of things, and that they needed somebody to help kind of take on the day-to-day running of the firm, the business, etc., and also kind of who somebody who's more of a strategic thinker and titles. I mean, I guess the best way to put it is. I could be the chief glue or I could just be the glue. I mean, uh, my goals is often to connect with the clients, connect with the staff, connect with the projects and profession. And how do I kind of stitch that fabric together? And that's been my, my goal and my remit as well. The title, yes, there it's not there. I mean, it could be managing partner or something. And I would say titles are often for the external world internally. That doesn't change anything. It's not that suddenly I'm doing something significantly different from my prior role. Finding great projects that the staff could work on, they can enjoy, that's the key driver. And secondly, making sure that the projects have the right kind of staff, kind of pivoting and getting the right people on right projects, that's the other part. So you can call me the glue.
2: Where is Olsen-Kundig right now, like after having just come back into the office what are the next questions that you're looking at? You already mentioned this idea of applying in the same way that you're thinking about QAQC, applying the same thinking about sustainability. Are there any other questions I dropped in the chat that Olsen Kundig is hiring 20 open roles right now? Talk us through some of the open questions right now that you're working through.
0: Great question, I would say. Where we are as a firm, I mean, we are the innovators. I mean, we want to be that and uh, kind of help lead the profession. And how do we do that? I mean, uh, that's why our response to that is we will be the size that our projects need and our clients need. If it's X number, we'll be there. If it's less, that's fine. But bringing the right kind of folks to the table is, uh, is super critical to us and for our clients. So we want to be innovative. I mean, you've seen on our websites, we have a unique position called the Gizmologist, which I don't think any other firm out there will probably, I mean, they might have now, but they've never had where we are. We are the tinkerers. I mean, we constantly tinker, work, and innovate. And as we look to the future, I mean, sustainability is a huge factor for us. Look into digital fabrication, how do we innovate on that? And How do we work on projects uh, seamlessly internationally as well? I mean, we are part of the design dialogue globally. And what does that mean? How do we learn from other construction practices that are innovating? I mean, there's a lot of uh, 3D fabrication and construction that's happening. So how do we see those new innovations and kind of bring them into our thought process as well? So I would say if I were to have a crystal ball and project, a lot of tinkering is going to happen, not just uh, for us as a firm but for the profession as well.
1: I'm just fascinated with the idea of like what kind of design innovation could happen once those type of technologies get brought into practice, especially Olsen in kundigs in the sense of like three d fabrication and it poses so many different design questions for a firm, especially one really at least from my perspective, known in a very specific way, I guess, right? With a kind of identity, to sort of speak, from a design perspective. My next question would be, and then this is a, a really interesting one related to sort of case studies in business in general, but, you know, a lot of architects study the work of other architects purely from the perspective of, like, design, right? Like, they buy the croquis to kind of, like, as an index of, and maybe get inspired, maybe absorb some of that in their own work. Now, in the business sense, we have case studies, right? It's the right. it's the similar tool of the monograph, so to speak, is a collection of, of different examples. What are your own the kind of touch points for case studies in the industry or outside of it? Like, what has been inspiring you recently from the way other organizations are run or things that have just been kind of top of mind for you in that space?
0: I'm glad that you asked that question. In a life prior to Olson Kunde, I was in interior architecture space. and. In fact, there is a case study from Harvard on the CEO of that firm, which was Trisha Wilson, as to how she, I mean, that firm had a storied history of 40 plus years and how she was successful, I mean, in putting together this world-class organization. And that's been an inspiration to me as well, having working with Trisha at uh, Wilson, where we having multiple offices and working with the who's who of the world with regards to interiors again, how do we stitch together the creatives to come and engage and be open to learning from other creatives? And that was an amazing experience for me. And yeah, I've really respected her for creating what she did in the interior architecture space. So that's something I'm really proud of.
2: What's a finance and operations, like a really tough problem in your discipline Maybe one that you have actually found a unique solution to, and then maybe two, one that you're still trying to figure out. Probably is
0: the same problem, which I'm sure a lot of the firms in the profession are facing, which is finding talent these days. I mean, uh, it's a challenge. There are not enough folks getting into the profession, and uh, it's challenging. And what we've done at Olson kundig was We are working with a, I wouldn't call them a recruiting firm, but they are more recruitment process firm, and we brought them on board. Now, I'm sure other firms have done that before me, so nothing unique there. But what we did differently was we told them, if you're going to identify and hire talent for us, you have to be effectively be one of us. You have to be in our space to spend some time, understand what we do, what makes us tick, understand our DNA. Because I see bringing on talent as not just a process, but kind of you're making a marriage work together between the folk, that, the person that's coming in and what the firm is. And so we've had their team come to our office spaces. Again, this is before the pandemic, where they would be part of our Monday morning meetings or our crit or any of those, or even beer 30s. I mean, so kind of meet the folks that are here and understand our culture before you convey to a candidate what it is. It has worked so far great. Have we found all the talent that we need? No. And we'll continue to look for innovative solution on that as well. I mean, as to how do we attract people into the profession? We have an intern program, which we've expanded on. We have brought on board interns from different parts of the world, different countries. So we look at uh, the profession and not just a microcosm of domestically, but on a larger scale, where folks from different parts of the world are bringing different perspectives. So... That process continues. Talent management, bringing on talent is an ongoing thing that will continue to happen and we will require more focus from all firms collectively for the
1: profession to grow and develop. We've heard from a lot of other, let's say, finance leaders in previous interviews about this kind of dynamic between numbers, let's say, right, and architecture or like the design process. How do you keep creativity in the work process and allow for people to have that extra time and flexibility to work on design, while also keeping in mind the budget right of a right. project. What I mean, is there something that, from a process perspective, that has been structured to enable that kind of like open space time, but with time boxing? What are the kind of techniques that Olsen Kundig has been working on on that front?
0: One of the things that I've always said is that if you start with the a right budget, a right fee structure then you will be successful. You would have the time that one needs to to devote to the project. And oftentimes numbers are a starting point for a project and whatnot. And I often tell them, let's look at it from the perspective of what does the project need? What would it take to deliver a project? Let's start from there. And then we can rationalize what the numbers would look like. How many team members we need, what we need. Once we we have that, then numbers are an end result of how the project is going it's a means to kind of to know where things are and kind of the guardrails instead of uh, it being the end goal we don't set out for any project saying that we're going to make x percent margin or x profit on this it's more about let's find what the needs are of the project who are the right resources to address that and how much fee would it take do we tighten our fees Yes. I mean, I would say that happens. I mean, that's something when you're working with a client, you understand the needs and you would tweak it. But that's where, I mean, I think that's probably a small part of the process. I mean, you tweak that to make the budgets and then you work on the efficiency. How can we still have a similar team and be more efficient as to how we deliver the project? And that's where the numbers shake out of that. I mean, numbers don't create the project. The projects create the numbers.
2: That's really interesting, HP. Um I want to bring in a question. How much technology is involved in managing the office and projects?
0: These days, I mean, I think tools, I would say technology is basically tools that we leverage to manage our projects, manage our business. There are project management toolkits that we have, project dashboards. Our accounting and project accounting team does a pretty excellent job. And we are taking a slightly different approach where project accounting is going to be embedded within the project team. So they are part of the team instead of them coming at it from the accounting perspective, Mm. they're going to be a living, breathing part of the team. So they understand and they can help the the designers and the project managers make more real-time decisions with regards to how the project is is shaping up. Or if they need to pivot, that information is easily available to them. So we are also pivoting. That's something new that we are uh, implementing where, Project accounting is going to be part of our project teams. So a a lot of technology. We use a lot of tools with that regard. I mean, uh, Power BI is kind of a a friend to a lot of us as we leverage that. There are ERP tools that that we leverage. Then there are usual technology tools with regards to HR, timekeeping, et cetera. It's embedded right now in, in any practice out there where, I mean, the tools are really critical because, I mean, A, the information can be easily available and can be available quicker with the digital tools. So we leverage technology from that perspective.
1: Just to expand a bit, a bit upon that, and there's this kind of emerging a relationship between operations and technology, right? Where it's now that, and I'm very curious how it operates at in Kunde, but, you know, there's new roles that have been seen to emerge within different design practices where you might have a, Marketing ops person or a design ops person that's solely focused on the operations of a team or projects, are you starting to see that kind of or looking into that? I mean, maybe this, this idea of embedding the finance team more into a project is kind of part of that operational side. but are you seeing that kind of shake out in a different way? Like even for the power BI, I'm very curious, like what team is the one in charge of actually putting those together for the company as a whole?
0: That's a really important question. We created the Office of Director of Architecture Operations for Olsen Kundig, Mm -hmm. which is, I wouldn't say that they are leading the whole part BI. They are a, a critical part of that because, I mean, again, we have practitioners also participating in that process. We have accounting folks participating in that process. So it's an amalgamation of different disciplines coming together. So that group is engaged with, uh, right from putting together the fee structure together, the proposals kind of thing. So they're able to understand project needs, what resources are needed, staffing. That group of architectural operations is able to assist with the project management as well. So bringing that team together has been a very defining moment for us, as we've seen a lot of projects come through. A, that also gives a continuity. The project managers are able to engage with that team to sit down and understand the right kind of resources that they need and how we pivot and get them those resources. Because in the end, I mean, as most firms, we tend to be lean as well to a certain degree, especially in the last two years. That's one lesson that pretty much has been ingrained to us that we have to be lean in order to respond to the times. So as we get lean, I mean, we work with a blend of generalist architects, specialist architects, folks that have had a lot of experience in certain markets or certain project typologies, and kind of stitching that together. And to me, I find my director for architectural operations to be the key person in that problem solving.
2: We have a question from a previous guest practice guest, Marjan Pearson, who's also going to be a speaker at Section Cut. Marjan is asking if, HP, are you involved in design discussions with the teams? Like with clients, how does your business perspective impact the design process?
0: I would say yes and no. I've had an extensive, especially on some market sectors, I do work with the project teams. I've spent an extensive amount of time in the hospitality space. I mean, I started my career with a hospitality consulting firm. PKF was my starting point. And so with that background, I do engage on that, especially on guest experiences and some of the, I would say more of economic feasibility of a project, what construction costs we are designing to. And so I do engage in those discussions with our, especially with our hospitality clients, not so much with our residential clients, because I mean, A, that's a more intimate space. And B, often, I would say a lot of the decision-making in there is more emotion-driven. So there is more room to navigate. So I do engage on the hospitality market sector fair bit.
2: We have another question that came in. I'm surprised to hear finding talent is a challenge. How do you define talent?
0: Great question. I've had this discussion with our team and with our hiring firm that we uh, use, which is we are looking for talent. We are not looking for resources. That's the distinction that we make. I mean, we are not just looking for a architect or a, a space planner. I mean, and that's where the challenge lies. I mean, it's difficult to find talent. I wouldn't say it's easy to find resources, but Relatively speaking, finding folks that bring the right kind of experience to our project typology or the kind of markets that we work in and kind of have honed their skills a little bit and are eager to learn and innovate. So when you bring all of that together, we are looking for talent and not so much just design resources.
1: I'm always very curious about what... (laughs) It's kind of a, a weird question, but essentially, you know, when you think about bringing in talent to people, a lot of times there's the two approaches and you mentioned a little bit about generalists versus specialists in some way. Do you find that like really strong candidates have an affinity for business, for the business side or already have a kind of operational mindset to begin with?
0: Yes and no, I would say. I mean, I think for a big, they want to understand uh, what it means. What does that mean? I mean, what's the art of business? And I kind of help them understand it from the perspective of a project. Running the firm is akin to running your project. You're talking about the client. You're talking about the resources or the talent and the people that you need. And you want to make sure you're within the budget. You want to make sure in the end there is a money left over for CCA. You are ahead of the curve and ad services happen. So it's very similar. And the folks that kind of understand or go down that path of uh, figuring that out show a greater affinity to what's the business. I mean, in the end, the art of business for a design firm is the art of running a project.
1: We also have a couple of uh, questions regarding projects here. How do you prioritize projects? I think this is a very interesting question in terms of, you know, when people decide to take on what kind of work. Do you have a criteria that helps you understand when a new potential project comes in? Whether it's your business development team uses that as a rubric. How do you think through projects and their opportunity?
0: I wouldn't call it a rubric per se, but we have kind of some broad guidelines or a set of uh, rules that we kind of run different projects on. We have a pretty effective go-no-go no go process that kind of looks at things. I mean, how does this project enhance our design skills? How is it going to push design forward? Is the client realistic with regards to what they want to build and what their budget is? As you probably heard, they have an expectation of a Ferrari and want to spend money on a, I don't know. Emery. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Yeah. So, I mean, aligning that, I mean, that's important. And do we have the resources? I mean, or do we have the skill set? And I'll show you a very interesting project. We were never known for building large commercial spaces. I mean, our roots are in the residential space. And one of our clients who we did some work for or saw our work on residential space and said, can you come and work for us and help us uh, bring... Build a commercial and that was Nike. So we did a R&D innovation center for them in Portland. So how does it enhance our relationships? I mean, we value our allies and our relationships very dearly and we'll take on uh, projects and work with our clients. And if that means we play the role of, let's say, just the architect only and somebody else does the interior architecture, we are open to that. But again, those are kind of the criterias that we kind of apply. Those are different lenses. Another thing that we are kind of pushing forth is, how inclined is the client towards sustainability? I mean, is that a lens that can be applied? So yeah, all of those criteria go into a project selection, I would say.
2: We have another question. To what degree do the principles get involved throughout the life of an architectural project?
0: Right from the beginning, from concept, or even from this first site visit, even before we've taken on the project, we try and do a site visit before we take on a project in most instances. Till the time a finished project is delivered, our partners, our principals are engaged throughout. We are not a firm where the partner sketches the thing, the principal runs with it to a certain point, hands it off to a PM, then who takes it forward. We are not that kind of a firm. We have had our partners attend OACs throughout the life of the project, I mean, in some instances, or they would be at some of the OACs, if not all of them. So we stay thoroughly engaged throughout the life cycle of a project.
1: This next question uh, from Marjan. It's so good. (laughs) Question about Olsen-Kundig's board and executive leadership. How and with whom does your leadership group focus on longer range strategy as opposed to operational performance, including current legal and financial issues? What is the venue for discussions about the future impact of design and how Olsen-Kundig might need to evolve? So I guess at the very top, at the very, very high level, how does the leadership group focus together on longer range strategy?
0: So our board, or I mean, we don't call it a board, to be honest. We find it too corporate a term to call it a board. We have a set of advisors that we work with who are long-term industry practitioners that we engage with on a regular basis. The partnership group comes together. In fact, we meet uh, every week now. And that's a good lesson that we have kind of learned and put it on ourselves during the pandemic that we want to meet every week because there is, for a firm our size, I mean, there is... So much that's happening, so much uh, the firm is evolving, that we want to be thinking through the things that are impacting the profession, our firm, and what's coming down in the future. So, so we meet every week. And to the other part of this question as to where will Olsen-Kundig evolve, to be honest, I mean, we've tried to define ourselves as uh, we are a bunch of collaborators I mean coming out of Seattle, which is kind of the unstable edge of our Pacific Rim. So we always are looking out. Or how do we create, let's say, building performances from our designs. So those are all things which are very critical to us. And the other element that's super important and where, I mean, as we think about is how do we bring more diversity into the profession? In fact, having this conversation with uh, some of the peers in the industry, our profession doesn't have enough diversity. I mean, if you look across and how do we encourage folks to be part of that? So There are peer groups that we engage with, the roundtables, and our set of advisors, and always trying to understand how is innovation problem solving part of our DNA as we look out to the future.
1: That's amazing to hear! Like a kind of weekly meeting to be able to sync on that. That's, I mean, that typically a calendar is like a calendar is a good understanding of someone's priorities, right? And like to have that as a weekly cadence seems.
0: And it's something we've done intentionally because, I mean, it's so easy for the partners and principals to kind of get sucked into the world of projects and clients and travel, et cetera. But we've kind of taken it upon ourselves to, to create that intentional meeting. Our principals meet weekly, once a week, and as with the partners and a regular partner principal meetings. So it's an intentional approach that we've
2: taken. We're closing in on time. I'm going to encourage uh, George to move to some of his final questions.
1: Great. I think I can kind of just uh, wrap it up with the last question that I ask all the guests. I'm not sure if you've heard it before. Some guests don't always go to the end of of previous recordings, which is a surprise, but it's basically a way where we kind of always bring it back to being human, which is a really core value to Monograph. And that is, what's the nicest thing or kindest thing anyone's ever done for you?
0: That's something that happened very recently for me. And again, wasn't expected or needed. My executive assistant as I was doing my climb. I mean, I was trying to run a remote office sitting at the base of Mountain in Nepal. I mean, believe it or not, challenging with COVID and everything. And uh then towards the end of the expedition, kind of got stuck due to weather and whatnot. And I was amazed at I mean, she heard about it from my wife that I was stuck. I did not have any email at that point because of the weather. And she mobilized resources that I could not even think of or fathom and to figure out how to get me out of there. And I was deeply touched by the effort she put in in reaching out to folks in different parts of the world who could kind of reach out to me. And help me get out of there. So,
1: yes. Wow, that's an incredible fixer. (laughs) (laughs) Can can solve global problems. That's amazing. That's talent. (laughs) That is talent.
0: That's the difference between a resource and a talent.
1: (laughs) That's crazy. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think what we'll do is we'll kind of close off a little bit with a little brief description about Monograph in general. So, at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to medium sized firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Our three co-founders all studied architecture, MIT and University of Michigan. I myself studied landscape architecture and architecture. Chris studied architecture. We can go on. There's all, about half of our company is people who care a lot about helping the industry. Monograph is essentially a great way to see a unifying vision of your firm in one easy and beautifully designed solution. HP mentioned about having like an embedded Finance person within your project team to see real-time budget information. Monograph does that explicitly with the money Gantt. We have a simple little bar on top of a Gantt chart that helps lets you know whether today you are on track or off track in relation to your budget, which is really powerful. So we can help you understand where you are in any given project, what your schedules and budgets look like. You can start a free trial today by going to monograph.com, or you can watch a live demo with our CEO Robert. Every week, every Friday, tomorrow, he's going to jump on a call with myself and with people who sign up to just walk through the product and answer any questions that you might have. This is unheard of compared to other companies in the similar space. So I just, just want to reaffirm that we care, right? And this is how we do that. Um, so we're going to add a link to the chat to both of those. And HP, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, for how open you've been talking about Olsen Kundig and the challenges that you're facing plus the opportunities and yeah really amazing well George
0: and Chris thank you so much for having me you guys are doing a phenomenal job I've been bringing different practitioners onto your podcast and I've listened to a few of them it's a wonderful forum and opportunity to talk about the things that are facing the profession as a whole and not just as a firm or any position but more so how do we make our profession even be better
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's through these conversations that we start to get there, essentially. Well, thanks everyone for joining sectioncut.com. Please sign up and register. It's a free event. There's CEU credits that we're working on to getting there. I'm legally obligated to say that or technically obligated to say that. But yeah, we're on our way to provide that. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining the event with me again. And thanks everyone. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thanks
0: everybody. Have a great
2: day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at Monograph.com. That's Monograph.com. Talk to you soon.